Happy Father's Day to all of you. It's so good to be with you this morning and to have opportunity to just share uh, with you on this subject of the perfect dad. Uh, Father's Day is such a, a special day. It's a great day for us to kind of make memories and to look back over our lives and to give thanks for the, the good memories that we have. So I wish for all of you dads the very, very best today and I hope that you have a wonderful time. So let's dive right in and talk about this subject of the perfect dad. I know that there are some things that guys really like in a sermon. And you can uh, toot your horn if you agree with this. Guys like sermons that are meaty. They want something substantial, something they can sink their teeth into. They want something practical. Give me something I can do so that they can walk away with something to do. And they want something challenging, something that's going to take real effort. So today, I hope that I'm able to provide you with something meaty, something practical, and something challenging as a gift to you on this Father's Day. So without any more lollygagging, let's dive right in and learn a little bit about the perfect dad. I did some research for you. And uh, the best place to go when you're doing research, of course, is Google, right? You do a Google search. Tell me about the perfect dad. Outline for me what the perfect dad is like. And so I found this beautiful article from Success Resources. And here are the 12 qualities of great fathers according to Success Resources. Aaron, make sure to take notes on this. You're going to need these, okay? The first one is that good dads are disciplinarians. In other words, they don't let their kids get away with stuff. When they do stuff that they shouldn't do, a good dad strongly disapproves of their misdeeds. And he uses tough love. That's what he does. He uses his words and not his fists. I think that's a real good one right there. He also doesn't reward his children for things that should ordinary, that they should uh, ordinarily be doing around the house just as uh, members of the household, okay? Secondly, the, the, the good father allows his kids to make mistakes. He understands that his children are human and that making mistakes is just a part of growing up. So he allows for that. And he makes it clear, though, that repeated irresponsibility will not be tolerated. A really good dad, according to this article, is open-minded. He understands that things change, and he doesn't stay stuck in the past. He teaches his children to appreciate things. I should have gotten a honk for that one. He never lets his kids take what they have for granted. He makes his kids see the value of everything that they have. And he encourages his kids to contribute to some of the things that they do have. He doesn't let his kids treat him like an ATM machine. No honks for that? I thought for sure that that would give me a honk. He accepts his kids aren't exactly like him, and he respects their values and opinions uh, of his kids as long as they don't harm the family or anyone else. He spends quality time with his kids. He has fun with them. He plays games with them. He listens to them. He helps them with their homework, but finish the sentence for me, Garvisa. He doesn't do it for them. Now, 
I fail here in many ways, and I'm sure there are a few other dads out there that did as well when it came to doing your homework for your kids. A good dad leads by example. He doesn't describe, uh, subscribe to the idea of do as I say, but not as I do. Instead, he practices what he preached, and he values, um, he lives by the values he wants his children to follow. This list is getting a little bit long here, but we're still not finished. There are several more. He's supportive and loyal. He challenges his kids. He teaches his children lessons. He protects his family at all costs. And here's the last one. He loves unconditionally. Now this, according to them, is the greatest quality of a good father. He loves unconditionally. I like this list. I think it's really good. Um, But... You know, uh, we might look at this and we say, well, you got that from Google. Let's, let's hear what the Bible has to say. What does the Bible have to say about being a good father? Because we trust in the authority of the Bible. And so we turn to the Bible and we look for a list from the Bible of, of what qualities are of a good father. Now, uh, when I first started my career in ministry, uh, one of the first organizations I worked for was a ministry called Dad the Family Shepherd. And the, the notion that was um, uh, espoused by Dad the Family Shepherd is that God has placed dads in the home or in the family as a shepherd to guide their children through life. And so uh, this article that I found on the manhoodjourney.org talks about 26 qualifications for biblical fatherhood. And what they do is they look to the scripture for qualities of a good shepherd. And then they uh, say that these qualities of a good shepherd are also qualities of a good father. Now here's what the scripture says are 26 qualifications for biblical fatherhood, okay? A biblical father is above reproach. He's the husband of one wife. He has believing children. He's sober-minded, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He's a lover of good. He's upright, He's holy. Where are you going, Mike? You need to hear this stuff. He's disciplined. He holds firm to the word. He's able to give sound instruction. He's able to refute bad instruction. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent, but he's gentle. Not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. Not greedy a good manager of his household. I know I'm going way too fast for you guys to keep up with this, to write it all down. I promise you it's on the slide presentation. You can get it off the website later on in the week. He's a good manager of his household. He keeps his children submissive. How are you guys doing on that one? Right, Mike? All right. He keeps his children submissive. He's not a new convert and he's well thought of by outsiders. That is A to Z, 26 items that tell you exactly what a good father would be doing, should be doing, what his characteristics and his qualities are. These lists that I've looked at today, they're great lists. In fact, they're perfect. They describe an ideal. 
In fact, when we look at this, we see qualities and characteristics of our own heavenly father, and they're reflected in what a good father could be or might be like. And you know what? Glow, there are lists not only for men, but there are lists for women. I won't, I won't read them today, but just go to Proverbs 31. There's a list there that describes all of the qualities of a really good Proverbs 31 woman, okay? There are lists for children that describe exactly how children should behave in respect to their parents or how they should submit to authorities. There are lists. Lists come from everywhere. There are lists for everyone. And we will all respond to these lists in one of two ways. Here's the first response. Maybe with the first response, what we'll do is we'll write those things down and we'll put check marks by all of those things that, are, that we're mostly good at. And then we'll circle those that we need to work on, all right? We take a good posture toward it. We're going to tackle this. We're going to do it. We're going to get this thing straightened out. And then we start to think about or believe that these things are what we must do in order to be pleasing to or acceptable to God, in order to be right with God. We believe that this list is a, 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 a guide or a direction for how, how we must live or how we must behave in order to be acceptable to God. And this is where the ideal of the perfect dad or the ideal of the perfect mom or the ideal of the perfect child becomes law for us. This is where that, that list of 26 or 12 or, or 14 becomes law for us. And we own it as if it's a, a list of shoulds and oughts and musts that determine whether or not we are acceptable in the sight of God. And this response might also compel us to join a group, like a dad's group, join a dad's group, and ask the other guys in the group to hold you accountable to the list. And those guys gather around you, and they bust your chops, man. They go for it. They tell you when you're messing up. And with these fellow dads, you'll gather around, and you'll read some books about how to improve your ability to lead and to shepherd your children. And that's great. That's awesome. But if you're not careful... This law that you have adopted as your own will drive you to a life of striving and trying. Striving and trying. Out of your own human effort, out of your own strength to be able to keep this list and to keep it perfectly. Because the law always leads to striving. Now, although I don't recommend it, some of you may even go to your lovely wives and may say to her, sweetheart, tell me, how am I doing with this list? Am I succeeding or am I failing? I'll tell you right now, I won't be the one doing that. But I know many that would. And some of us will strive to achieve this ideal and all of us will fail at doing it perfectly. Let me just say that one more time. We will strive to achieve this ideal, but all of us will fail at doing it perfectly. The standard 
that you have adopted will scold you and will reveal to you just how imperfect you are. And this is where the ideal which leads to striving results in measuring and comparing. Any of you ever experienced that sense of measuring and comparing where you take out the list and you look at the list and you look at you and you find that you're just not meeting the mark. You're just not towing the line. You're not fulfilling the expectations. And this measuring and comparing almost always results in a feeling or a sense that you are not good enough and that there's something fundamentally wrong with you that isn't wrong with other guys. How is it that that guy can be so patient while I blow up? And where is it that, why is it that his kids are getting awards in school and my kids are just average? And this is where we find that our comparing and measuring leads to hiding and pretending. Now, I want to take just a second and explain this because I think all of you have experienced this before. You have this standard and you really want to accomplish it and you really want to achieve it. And you gather other people around you who share in common with this set of principles and you're all wanting to do the same thing. And it appears to you that some of the other guys are doing pretty good, but you aren't doing so well. You have a rebellious child or maybe your daughter becomes pregnant or maybe just fill in the blanks with something that indicates that you aren't such a great dad. Now, maybe you're um, one of those people who can actually go to the group and talk openly about that. But many of us, many of us, in fact, I would say that most of us, when we are faced with this, what we want to do is hide our shame. We want to hide that sense that we've blown it, that we don't meet up to the expectations of other people. Teddy Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And I would suggest to you that sometimes adopting a posture, a legalistic posture to lists about what it takes to be a good dad or sets of principles or guidelines can produce this comparing which leads to shame and ultimately hiding. And you're not able to be your most authentic self. You're not able to share openly with uh, people what's going on because you think that if you do, they certainly could not continue to want to be in your company. And next thing you know, we're right back to where we started. We're face-to-face with the standard that cannot be kept perfectly. The Bible has a lot to say to us believers about trying to live by law, about trying to keep the letter of the law. One of the first things I wanted to share with you about this idea of living your life by trying to keep the law is that the law is an all or nothing proposition. 
Let those words sink into your mind. The law is an all or nothing proposition. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in any one point, he has become guilty of it all. Stumbles in one point, you are guilty of it all. And Galatians 3.10 goes on to say that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's what the law does. The letter of the law kills. Here's what Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 through 25 say. And listen closely. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith. In other words, we were blind to faith. We couldn't see it. We didn't, we didn't even know that it existed as an option. We were under the law. We were shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified. How? By faith. But not that faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under the tutor. So the law is like a tutor to us. It's like a teacher, a guardian who guides us to faith. The law has a purpose. It's good. It's holy. It's righteous. It guides us to trust. It guides us to dependence. But the letter of the law has a specific response, and that is it kills. And it's killing me to try to turn this page right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter, listen, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter of the law will kill you every single time. Paul himself experienced this being put to death by the letter of the law. He talked about it in Galatians chapter 2. And I love this passage for many reasons. Listen to verse 19 through 21. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify or make invalid or prove to be not true the grace of God. I do not prove the grace of God to be untrue. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So where then, brothers and sisters, does our righteousness come from? Does it come from keeping the list of 26? Does it come from keeping the list of 12? Does it come from keeping the 10? Does it come from any other means besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Thank you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, rebukes the people in Galatia, where Paul says to them, when they have been tempted to believe that they need to do something more than believe, they need to do something other than believe, they need to listen to the Jewish influencers, and they need to get circumcised in order to be acceptable to God. And this is how Paul rebukes them. He says, you foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul rebukes the Galatians because they have gone from believing that they can accept Jesus by faith for salvation, but then to actually live the Christian life, they are going to adopt a legalistic framework. They're going to follow the rules. They as Gentiles are going to go down to the synagogue and get circumcised and things are going to be better. But there's a problem with that. Our righteousness, Gail, does not come from the keeping of the law. Our righteousness comes from trusting. It comes from believing. It comes from faith. It is not through legalistic acquiescence, but instead through dependence upon God that we actually grow into everything that Christ created us to be. And that's the second response. The second response, the alternative response to the list is this. Instead of being driven to a legalistic response, the ideal can produce in you humility. Let that word sit with you for just a second. The ideal, when you look at it, it can produce humility. It can actually make you aware of just how incapable you are of keeping it all. When I look at the list, all I can see is, oh boy, screwed up there, messed up there, can't do that, whoop, up. And it produces in me a sense of, I'd love to be able to do this. I'd love to be able to reflect this in my family, but I can't. I'm incapable of doing it in and of myself. And the response of humility is a biblical response. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6 says that God resists the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So in the face of an ideal that challenges you, in the face of a meaty sermon that steps on your toes, in the face of something that's not easy to accomplish, you respond in humility, knowing how desperate you are for grace. The ideal produces humility. Humility leads to grace. Grace produces dependence upon whom? The Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit here for weeks now. And this is where, we, where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the Holy Spirit's 
role or purpose in our life. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit. For, help me finish it, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he promised in the gospel of John that he would send a helper to us as believers in him. He would send a helper to us who would come in fulfillment to the promise of the new covenant and that that helper would not just dwell upon us as Rick has already taught us, but instead he would dwell within us and that God would, in the, in, under the new covenant, he would take from you your heart of stone and he would remove it from you and he would place within you a tender, responsive heart of flesh. And he would place his spirit within you, says Ezekiel 36, 26. And that he would write the laws that matter to him most on the inside of your heart so that you would be able to accomplish them. It's no longer living by an external list written on stone, brothers and sisters. Instead, it's now responding to an indwelling spirit who lives within you. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is God. And he lives within you and he wants to live through you. And the only way he can do that is if you are living in radical and total dependence upon him. Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 16 and following talk about this walk in the spirit. He says in 5.16 that if we walk by the Spirit, by the Spirit's influence, under the Spirit's power, if we walk in that way, we will not carry out the sinful desires of the flesh. So if you don't want to be walking after the desires of your flesh, here's the secret. Walk by the Spirit. Live in dependence upon the one who lives inside of you. The one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Live by that power. Live under that influence and allow him to guide you and direct you. And what happens as a result of walking by the Spirit? You will bear fruit of the Spirit. These fruit will exude from you. They will, they will manifest in you as you walk in a relationship of dependence upon him for the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and patience and peace and so on and you can look at that list as well and treat it the exact same way you can respond in one of two ways to that list it can become for you a list of standards by which you measure yourself and you can find that you have failed and you can determine that you will do everything you can to improve on every point of the fruits of the Spirit. But it will lead to nothing but frustration. It will lead to nothing but despair. And you will throw your hands up and give up and you will hide from your brothers and sisters because you know that you cannot keep it perfectly. But approach that list in humility. Approach that list with the mind of Christ. And you see and you realize, I can't do this. This is not me. It can't be me because I'm incapable of that. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20 says, but Christ who lives within me. So if I'm to produce love, then I must be living from the lover of all people. Christ Jesus. If I'm to produce peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, it needs to come from inside where Jesus lives and the Holy Spirit is powerful. Living by grace. This life of grace, this second response, it saves us from our inability to live perfectly. And thank God it does, Kevin. Thank God that we have a Savior who rescues us from our inability to keep any standard. Because there's always imperfection in every one of us. Even you, Tom. Even you, brother. We all have imperfection and we all need a Savior. We all need someone to come in and provide righteousness where we ourselves have failed in some point. Grace sets us free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is true that the law of sin and death is always true. It's always in play. Sin always produces death. But there is another higher law which has been put into place. It is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it sets us free from this law that says that sin must produce death. And we are living our lives in dependence upon this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And thanks be to God, there is no condemnation. It doesn't constitute for us freedom to sin. I'm with, I'm with the Apostle Paul. What a ridiculous notion. Whoever imagined that we were looking for an excuse to sin. We're not looking for an excuse to sin. We've died to sin and we're no longer a slave to sin. And we don't have to be governed by sin. We can live our lives in trust and dependence upon Jesus who dwells within us. Grace unites us in a loving family. Grace brings us into a safe place where we can be our most authentic self. I know you mess up, and I love it when you come to me and share about those times of messing up so I can come in and bear that burden with you and point you to Jesus, point you to the cross, point you to the Spirit who is your greatest and only hope. I'm so grateful that grace has brought us into a loving family. And grace credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. Grace credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. Think about this. You were guilty of every manner of sin. You were an enemy of God. You were dead to God. You were alive to sin. You were separated from him. You were in opposition to him. I heard Carlton pray this morning. You were in a pit. You were deep in a pit. And God caused him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. 
God took all of the righteousness of Jesus and moved it to the account of Kevin. God took all of the sin of Kevin and moved it to the account of Jesus. Jesus died for it. He paid for it. He took it away from you and he gave you his righteousness as a gift. He gave it to you. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You can't repay for it. He's not asking you for tips. He's not asking you to in any way pay him back for what he did. All he wants is for you to live in a trusting relationship with him. That's what grace does for you. It gives you the righteousness of Jesus. So, you're not the perfect dad, and neither am I. I have messed up in so many ways. Almost every point that I read here today from the 12 and the 26, I've blown it in. I've tried. I've wanted to do well, and I've tried. And there have been times when in my dependence upon Jesus, I bore fruit as a dad, and I am so grateful for that, and I'm still trusting him for that, because even though my baby boy is 26 years old, he still needs a daddy, and I'm still that guy, and you're still that guy, and the great news in this message, Bob, is that while you can't do it on your own, you're not on your own. If you are in Christ Jesus, then Christ Jesus is in you and we have together a father who loves us who understands our weaknesses and he has provided for that need in his precious son he came to live inside of us and he invites invites us to live in total dependence upon him let's pray Father, we are so grateful this morning for the truth of the scripture, for the truth of the gospel, and for the righteousness which comes by faith from God. We're thankful for that. We praise you for being the kind of father who perfectly provides for the needs of his children. And you've provided for the fact that we are, are not capable of pulling off this life on our own. And we just pray right now as dads and moms and children throughout this parking lot, God, we just cry out to you, Lord, teach us what it means to live in dependence upon you. Teach us what it means to let Holy Spirit have his way in our lives. Teach us what it means to reflect his life and his character by his power. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Father's Day. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Take care. We'll see you next week.